Okay, we are in a series called Continue, and today we're doing Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 29. This is the second part of the first part that we started last Sunday, and we're talking about today continuing in the faith, and I'm going to read the blue, you're going to read the black, and we already read this last week, and I'll show you where our text is this week. So it says this, he... Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making him the blood of the cross. This is our text today. And you, me, us, who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, me and us, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the ministry hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints." To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles and are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that so powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your generosity and the exhibition of your extravagant love, truth, and grace in Jesus Christ. And now we ask that your Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, would quicken our minds, Lord, that we may understand, our mouths that we may speak, our ears that we may hear, and our hearts that we may understand. And as we go out from this place, Lord, help us to live out in tangible, meaningful ways what it means to be a Christ follower. And in his name we ask these mercies. Amen. Now, why don't you be seated? So, we didn't get to our morning groaner yet. So, how many of you are Montreal Canadiens fans? Raise your hands. You shouldn't be ashamed of it. Raise your hands. Well, that should be a groaner enough. But this groaner sort of falls in the category of how many people does it take to change a light bulb? And you've heard them, right? How many Pentecostals does it take to change a light bulb? Eight. 
One, to change the light bulb, and seven, to cast out the spirit of darkness. <laughs> How many psychologists does it take to change the light bulb? None, because the light bulb has got to want to change. And how many Newfoundlanders does it take to change the light bulb? 100. One to hold the light bulb and 99 to turn the house. I can say that because I am one. How many Montreal Canadians does it take to change the light bulb? None. They just stand around and talk about how great the last one was. And if you're offended by that, then it's Pastor Derek's fault because he told me that this week. <laughs> anyway, let's get to our text. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to ask three questions and answer them. And I think our text really does give us three questions. The first question is, who is Jesus? And we began last week, part one of, part, uh, of two parts of talking and focusing on verses 15 to 18, talking about who Jesus is, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, how many of you like jigsaw puzzles? Raise your hand. You don't need to be ashamed of that either. Now, are jigsaw puzzles still a thing? Not so much. Okay, but whatever. How many of you like jigsaw puzzles? I personally hate them. But have you ever tried to put a jigsaw puzzle together without having access to the picture on the box cover? There are hundreds, probably thousands of pieces that are spread over some table, and you're trying to put together this puzzle without any form of context or reference And it's almost an impossible, at least a frustrating task. This is how it is with Jesus. Jesus is the picture on the box cover. He is the master scene on the cover that causes and helps all the other pieces to fit together. Remember what we said last week of the Bible? The Bible is not primarily about redemption, or it's not about the church, and it's not about evangelism. The Bible is first and foremost primarily about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the unifying theme, not just of the Bible, this text tells us, but of all of creation. Jesus is complete. He is completely God, he is completely man, or human rather, and he is completely able to save us, to restore us, and he is completely able to give us hope. Nothing needs to be added to who he is. Nothing needs to be added to what he has done, and nothing needs to be added to what he will do in the future. Now, I want you to sort of take that thought, and I want you to put it in the filing cabinet of your mind for a moment, and we'll pull it out a little bit later. No matter what other stories are being told by other storytellers, it is Jesus Christ plus nothing. 
It is not Jesus Christ plus never making a mistake or never sinning again. It is not Jesus Christ plus water baptism. It is not Jesus Christ plus speaking in tongues. It is not Jesus Christ plus our own strength and ingenuity and wisdom. It is Jesus Christ plus nothing. He's complete. Now, as we pick up our text from, for this week, we do so at verses 21 and down to 29. Now, verse 21 says, And you, me, us, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present us, me and you, holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. You know what this is? You know what that verse is, those two verses that I just read? It is a before and after picture. You know what I'm talking about? You know, they uh, have this person and they, they have a before picture when they're ugly. And then they have another picture later when they're really nice looking or they're really, you know, don't dress very well. And then all of a sudden they're dressed really well or whatever the case may be. It is a before and after picture. Now, there's another one in the Bible, and the other one is found in the book of Ephesians. And it is a before and after picture, is probably one of the most profound texts in the entire New Testament. And this is what it says. And Paul, again, of course, is writing to the uh, church in Ephesus, and he writes these words, And you were dead... In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked and followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and daughters, I guess, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But, all right, so that's the before picture, that's who we were. And now he tells us, shows us the after picture. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love that he, in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ and by grace you have been saved. Now this is another before and after shot. And right in the middle of Ephesians chapter 2 is this word, but. And it is a big but. It is a huge but. And it is the dividing line between what you and me used to be and what we are currently. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand. You ready? And this group over here, and we'll divide this, the balcony over here, you're going to read down to four, there, and you're going to leave out the but. I'm going to say but. You're the before people. And you guys... You're the after people. 
And you're going to read everything from God being rich in mercy, and you're going to read it with gusto. So team one, are you ready? Let's go. Come on. You can do better. But, you're having some challenges over there. Be seated. This is the before and after picture. Now, Is there an act that is so evil that it cancels out every other good deed? Secondly, is there an act that is a single act that a person could do that is so good that it would cancel out every other bad deed? Now, it seems that that is the case in both scenarios. That there is an act that is so evil that it cancels out every other good act. And we have that in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 where Lucifer is the archangel, he is the chief archangel of heaven, and he leads a rebellion against God that is so evil that it turns him into Satan or Lucifer or our adversary. But on the other hand, yes, there is a single act that a person could do that is so good that it would cancel out every other bad act. And that is God's one single saving act in, through, and as Jesus Christ. Listen to Colossians before and after picture again. And we, you, me, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body by, of flesh by his death in order to present you, me, and us holy, blameless, and without reproach before him. Now hold on to that for a moment. N.T. Wright said this. He said the cross was not the defeat of Christ at the hands of the powers that be. 
It was the defeat of the it was the defeat of the powers that be at the hands, yes, at the bleeding hands of Jesus. And brothers and sisters, if we do not think that that is absolutely revolutionary, mind-blowing, and life-changing, we have not yet fully grasped who we used to be and who we currently are. This is who you used to be. This is who I used to be. Alienated. Hostile. And doing evil deeds. And now this is who we are currently. We are holy. You are blameless. And you are above reproach. Now you're thinking to yourself, but you don't know what I said this week. No, I don't. And I don't want to know. You don't know what I did this week. No, and I certainly don't want to know that. But it doesn't matter. Because you're holy. And you're blameless. And you're above reproach. You see, in the cross, in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God dealt a death blow to the powers that at the same time in the process made it possible for our pasts to be wiped clean. And now we are presented as holy, as blameless, and as above reproach. Now, there's only two responses to that. The first one is, wow. Right? The first one is, wow. Wow. How many of you knew that before? What I just talked about? How many of you knew that before? Raise your hand. How many of you never knew that before? Okay. We need to be reminded. This is who we were. And this is who we are. And the second response is yes. In other words, Paul says you don't walk away from a gift like that. Matter of fact, he says here in verse 23, if, if indeed... You continue in the faith, steadfast, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now, the word if in verse 23 is problematic for us. Because at first glance, it sounds like everything that is said about Jesus in the previous person, uh, verses is predicated on us and not on Jesus that it depends on us. But that's not what's being said here. Uh, that would be a contradiction of everything I said when I told you to put that thought in the filing cabinet of your mind. That everything that Jesus did is complete, everything that he is is complete, and everything that he will do in the future is complete. What God has done in, through, and as Jesus Christ is complete. 
Now, obviously, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that if you behave and if you're a nice person and if you tithe, well, you should tithe. And if you, if you, if you, then you're going to be blameless and you're going to be holy and you're going to be above reproach. That's what it sounds like. But obviously, that's not what it means. What it means, the word if can also be translated unless or otherwise. And so we could say unless we... All of this is true, what God has done in, through, and as Jesus Christ, unless we choose to walk away from it and say no to God's offer of love and forgiveness. Peterson, in the message, puts it this way. You don't walk away from a gift like that. You stay grounded and steady in that bond of trust, constantly tuned into the message, careful not to be distracted or diverted. There is no other message, just this one, that every creature under heaven gets the same message. And I, Paul, am a messenger of this message. So here's what it's like. Saying no to God's offer of love and forgiveness in Jesus Christ, is like being broke and saying no to a gift of money. It's like being stranded and saying no to rescue. It's like being a criminal and saying no to pardon. Now, the second question that is in this text is this one. As a Christian, what does success mean? look like? What does success look like? So, first of all, think this through now for a moment with me, these couple of questions. What comes to mind when you think of the word success? You don't need to shout it out, but what comes to your mind when you think about the word success? Who comes to your mind when you think about the word success? And when you think about the who, what is it that makes them successful? And then the last thing, or the second last thing, is in what ways does the Christian worldview of success differ from the secular worldview of what we call success? Now, in our text, there are three suggestions for us. If we are that we need to be willing to do and be if we're going to be successful. Now, I want you to put your seatbelt on for a moment. Buckle in. Because the problem with these three suggestions is that they are very troublesome. They are very unpopular, both in secular culture and even in the Christian church. Now, the first one is not so bad. The first one is service. We must be willing to serve. Jesus' mission and motto in Matthew chapter 20 verse 28 says, even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when we hear that, we need to be reminded of what Jesus said in Luke's gospel, where he says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he or she is fully trained, will be like their teacher. What do people like Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., Mother Teresa Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Desmond, Bishop Desmond Tutu, what do they all have in common? They are famous for their lives of service. And both in the Christian world and in the non-Christian world, we all recognize that the greatest acts of humanity always include serving. Paul says, of which I, Paul, have become minister or slash servant. The word there is diakonos or diakonos. It's where we get our word in the church, deacon. And what a deacon is, according to the New Testament, a deacon is somebody, you ready for it? Who literally waits on tables. That's what it means. A deacon is not a lofty position. It's a position of servanthood. A deacon is somebody who waits on tables. And in the kingdom of God, success is not a life of privilege. It is a life of service. And if you and I are going to be, if we are going to be successful in honoring Jesus Christ, then we are going to have to be willing to serve. Now, the second one is a little tougher. It's a little bit more difficult because the second one is suffering. That if we are going to be successful as Christ followers, you and I are going to have to be willing to suffer a little bit. Now let that a moment to soak in because nobody in their right mind likes the idea of suffering. It's not exactly the most comforting thing you've ever heard on a Sunday morning, right? Wow, Pastor Todd, I'm so glad I came this morning just to let you tell me that I need to suffer. Well, listen to what Paul says. Verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am making up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body that is the church. Now, isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? Paul says, basically, the church doesn't exist for me. Paul says, no, the church doesn't exist for me at all, but rather I exist for the church. Isn't that bizarre? And when Paul makes this reference, I am willing, I am filling up, he says, what is lacking in Christ. He's not saying 
that Christ's death on the cross wasn't enough. What he is saying is this, and he states it in 2 Corinthians 3.12. I'm reading it from the message. Anyone who wants to live all out for Christ is in for a lot of trouble. And there's no getting around it. Let me read it again. Anyone who wants to live all out for Christ is in for a lot of trouble. And there's no getting around it. In 1987, I went, we were graduated from Baba College. And um, Scott wasn't even, I think you already had children by then, didn't you, 1987? Wow, that's amazing. Scott wasn't even born yet, wasn't even on the radar. And in 1987, I went to this thing in Peterborough called Worldview. And that was the name of a conference. And one of the speakers there was a name, man by the name of Paul Kaufman. Paul Kaufman was, a, well, was born in China and grew up in China. And his family and him and his brother and all of them were just, after generation after generation, were just missionaries to China. And he was preaching that day from this text, from, not from the one we're reading, but from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 2 to 7. And i got to read it to you so you'll kind of hear what the gist is. And this is what it says. He says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrusted to faithful men who will be able to teach you, teach others also. And then then Paul writes this. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And it is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Then the Apostle Paul adds this, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So this is the text that Paul Kaufman is preaching from. And during the course of the message, he makes this statement. Now remember, this is 1987. And I would suggest to you and propose to you that there probably hasn't been a month that has passed since. I was going to say weeks, but I'll say months. That I haven't thought about this quote. And this is what Paul Kaufman said. He said, there is no redemptive value in our suffering. But unless we're willing to suffer, people will never come to know Jesus. And I have lived with that since 1987. You see, I know that this is not the way to win friends and influence people. But it's the Jesus way. Success is not about living the easy life. It's about living the best life. And then the third suggestion that we're given to us is that we have to be willing to struggle. Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. 
See, success isn't about having an easy life. It's about living the best life. And the road to success requires a willingness to remain in the struggle. A friend of mine a little while ago said this to me. He said, no one seems to want to fight for anything anymore. Couples aren't willing to fight for their marriages, their children, family. People are not willing to fight for their business. They're not willing to fight for the kingdom of God. They're not willing to fight for the gospel. It's the path of least resistance. And the path of least resistance is not the path of the kingdom of God. The path of least resistance is not the path of the gospel. And then we come to our third question. How do we do all this? How do we do all this? Are we left on our own? Absolutely not. Nothing in the Christian life, in your life or in my life, our lives, is left to human potential. Nothing. And our text answers the question, are we left... How do we do all of this? We do it by the sustaining power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of His energy that powerfully works within me. Now, I want you to notice that the word powerfully is the Greek word dunamai. Now, there's two nuances here that I want you to get. The first one is the word dunamai is where we get our English word dynamic. And what Paul is saying to us is that the Holy Spirit is dynamically working in you and me. Whether we are aware of it or not, as Christ's followers... The Holy Spirit is dynamically at work in you and I, in us. I love slogans, uh, corporate slogans. And hold that slide for a minute, uh, Mike, if you will. Um, And I love these slogans that have this double meaning, you know, double entendre, where they say one thing and they can mean something other. So one of my favorite, and I think one of the best slogans of all time, comes from the Canadian blood services. See, somebody works. There you go. Now, other than you, does anybody know what the slogan is for the Canadian blood services? It's what? It's in you to give. Isn't that a great slogan? Now, how many of you know, so there it is. So hold this one as well, Mike. How many of you know the slogan for Gatorade? Anybody? You're more in the blood than sport drinks. That didn't sound right. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. I'm going to back away from that now. Here's here's the one for Gatorade. Let's move on quickly. Is it in you? 
And all we need to do is change the pronouns because the Holy Spirit is not an it. He's not a force. He's a person. And the Holy Spirit is in you to give. Not only is he working in us, but he's also working through us. The other word that we get from the word dunamai is the word dynamite. It's combustible. And what fuel is to a vehicle, the Holy Spirit is to us as human beings. Now, remember what I said to you, that nothing in the Christian life is left up to human potential. Remember I said that? Not even Jesus. You know what the Bible says about Jesus? What we need to know about Jesus is this. Now, this is probably going to kind of, some of you are going to have to recalibrate your theology in a moment. Jesus never did anything of his own human ability. Everything Jesus did, he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything. When he read people's thoughts, the Holy Spirit. When he healed people, the Holy Spirit. Everything that Jesus did, he did by the power of the Holy Spirit, never in his human potential. And why do we know that? Because Acts chapter 10, verse 38 says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with them. A couple of weeks ago, actually a week ago yesterday, we had a Muslim seminar here and how to share faith with Muslim people. And the speaker said this, and I had forgotten about this. He was quoting somebody else, and he said this. He said that, remember this, all of the gifts of God are resident in the Holy Spirit. You get it? Nobody has the gift of healing. Nobody has the word of knowledge that's their own. We use those gifts, and the Holy Spirit works through us to express those gifts, but nobody possesses the gifts of the Spirit. They, are, they belong, they reside in God. And the same is true with the fruit of the Spirit. So the gifts and the fruit of the Spirit reside in God, and God resides in you. God resides in me, in us. And our tendency is to take matters into our own hands, our own hands and rely on our own strengths and abilities rather than on God's strength. But even Jesus, even the perfect man, even Jesus functioned through the sustaining power and presence of the Holy Spirit, not in his own ability. What about us? What about me? What about you? 
Oh, we know, of course, that the Holy Spirit resides in us. Paul tells us twice in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that we are the dwelling place of God, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But how many of us, honestly in the room, and those watching on it, how many of us, we operate more out of our own ability than out of the ability that God gives us? How many of us are in marriages and we don't know what to do and we think to ourselves... What do I do? And God says, why don't you let me work in you and in your spouse and in your marriage? The same applies to family and to children. The same applies to work and the same applies to every and, every, every and anything that we are involved in. God just doesn't reside in me and you so that we can do spiritual work. No, he wants us to be successful at every level of life. That's why we have the Spirit. So what about me and you? What about us this morning? Is the Spirit free to work in you and through you, in your marriage, in your job, in your education? In your neighborhood, in your home, in your own life? Some of us in the room are trying to beat back habits and sins and we're trying to do it on our own accord. And all of that is great, but the reality is we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to work dynamically in us and through us.